Hello, welcome back to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood here with my co-host Jason Hammond. Hey Todd, how's it going? Pretty good. Glad to be back on our next remote episode here. Getting yeah, the... so um, our preliminary, please excuse any uh, sound difficulties. We are remote streaming or re- remote recording uh, this episode, so we're going to do our best to keep pushing out content. And speaking of, we have what I would, I think this is a very cool topic. And uh, I mean, you can have your own opinion about it, but we're going to talk about single leg training. And what got me into researching this topic is I had a bunch of old cycling coaching newsletters that were given to me. And there was an ad for power cranks. Todd, I don't know if you're familiar with the product. Um, Yes. Um, And I remember hearing about it uh, when I first worked in a bike shop my boss was like, oh yeah, I use them. And um, the, the point is there's they're independent crank arms. So each uh, leg has to do the entire pedal stroke. You don't get that upward force from the opposite leg. So if, if you let one leg dangle, it'll just dangle and you wouldn't yep. be pedaling with just the other leg. And um, this episode is not about power cranks. We're not associated with power cranks. Uh, you know, all that stuff. But it got me thinking, is there an advantage of single leg training, doing work with just one leg? And of course, I dove into Google Scholar, tried to dig up as much stuff as I could. But in reality, this is an open research topic. We don't really know the answer to this question. Is there an advantage to doing single leg training? So hopefully I can present some of the the big white papers on the topic. And then uh, Todd and I are going to speculate about the importance or the influence of of single leg training in, in sport. So um, I guess to say quickly, the, the point of single leg training is you have to use all the muscles throughout the pedal stroke or else your leg won't come back up to 12 o'clock. And if you go back to one of our episodes, I think it was the biomechanics um, qualitative analysis episode, we talked about the fact that um, when you evaluate a pedal stroke, you have a coil, uncoil, Met, you know, protocol where the downstroke is you're uncoiling and, and you're exploding all the muscles at the same time, and then you have to coil up again in order to, order to explode outward again. And by not allowing the other crank arm to push you over the top, you develop the muscles used in the coiling phase so that it's easier for you to uncoil again. And you're developing your whole body as opposed to just the the power phase. Well, and the other piece of that is that if you're you know, lifting that leg back up from six to 12, now the force that you're putting down with the opposite leg actually goes to moving the bike forward instead of lifting the leg. Yeah. So you may become more efficient with your uh, movement patterns and we'll see if the, we'll see if the research uh, supports that idea. So uh, the first study we're going to talk about, and uh, we, we're going to have all these studies in the show notes. If you want to look at them in particular, read the abstract or whatever. Um, the first one called the effects of one and two legged exercise on the lactate and ven- ventilatory threshold. I haven't heard ventil- ventilatory threshold uh, before, but this is a bit of an older study from the early 80s. And uh, basically the ventilatory threshold is when you start to not be able to talk to the people you're riding with, which is usually about low tempo, um, just a little bit higher than endurance pace. And then lactate thresholds about FTP. And so what they did was they took, uh, they took athletes, they made them do a VO2 max test with one leg or two legs. And all athletes did both one leg and two leg on separate days. And then 
Um, they also looked at their lactate threshold and ventilatory thresholds. And the first thing they noted was that the lactate levels were higher in the single leg test than for uh, the double leg test at lactate threshold, which makes sense. If you only have one leg to pedal with, you're going to have higher lactate le- levels because you have a higher demand on that set of muscles in that one leg. So you're going to use a little bit more anaerobic effort, you're going to produce a little bit more lactic acid. And the other thing they noticed was that the VO2, the volume of oxygen used for LT and VT was the same for single leg and double leg. But at VO2 max, which is for cyclists about a five minute effort, the VO2 max values for a single leg were 79% of the double leg test. So the athletes who were in the study were able to produce 79% of their two-leg power with only one leg. And the author suggests that VO2 max is limited by a central circulation, the ability to provide oxygen to the muscles rather than the capacity of the muscles to fatigue. Or, you know, the fatigue of the muscles is not the limitation. The amount of oxygen you can get to them is the limitation. So this is interesting because this is like the reverse of that old saying that the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. This is like the opposite, right? Saying that the whole is actually less than the sum of the parts because of where the limitation is coming from. Yeah, if only we could actually use the sum of the parts, then we, right. could, we could be very fast. But um, yeah, we're not actually able to utilize all of our muscle mass because we have an oxygen limitation. And that's interesting. That seems to suggest that most of us have too much muscle mass if, if our goal is to be really good at VO2 max because um, clearly we're not using all of it. Right. We haven't optimized for that. Although, of course, as we've said, I think many times, bike races aren't won based on your VO2 max. Yeah. So that is one limitation of the study is they didn't measure necessarily the the optimal measure of performance Um, because there are people who have scored very well on VO2 max tests, but three and a half hours into a race, are you in the front group or not? because that's really going to be the biggest determinant of if you're on the podium or not. So the next study uh, is they, they built on this previous study. This is a more recent study from, um, I believe, the early 2000s. And this study, they used a counterweight in addition to, they, they did a, a single leg training protocol or a double leg training protocol. So they, this group had a control group. And they used a counterweight where they basically just put a 30-pound weight on the opposite pedal. And what this did was the pedal was going down during the working leg upstroke. And so it decreased the fatigue on the hip flexors and decreased the fatigue on the backside of the pedal stroke and better simulated a two-legged pedal stroke. But only one leg was actually being fatigued Mm -hmm. at a time. So the the argument with, with this was the reason we have single leg uh, discrepancies is because we're not simulating a double leg effort. We're not able to show an improvement in single leg training because we're not uh, simulating you know, the real world environment. And uh, I'll just go over the protocol. So uh, what they did was, and, and actually I should say this as well, if you are gonna do single leg training, the leg that you're not using should rest on a stool or block that is outside of the pedal, or it can rest on if you're using something like a um, not your road bike, like a, a machine, you can rest it on the center uh, portion of the machine. 
So yeah, you just rest the other leg. You try and keep your hips square and, you know, you go as hard as you can with the, with the working leg. So in this case, in this study, they did um, a three-week protocol with only two workouts per week. So only six workouts. Um, and it was either a single or a double leg high intensity training exercise. So for this, for the double leg, they did three by four minutes with six minutes recovery, just a, a short VO2 max, um, effort, you know, a short VO2 max workout. And then for the double leg or for, sorry, for the single leg, they did six four minute efforts, three four minute efforts per leg. So a total of six. Okay. And so, so the total muscle fatigue. Workload. Yeah. So the, actually the number of kilojoules was higher for the single leg workouts. Um, and that's because the single leg was a higher percent. It was not 50% of the right. uh, workload. It was greater, which we know from the last study. Um, but the, yeah, the total muscle fatigue the you know, the total time under load for all of the muscles combined is the same. And that's, that's mm-hmm. what the researchers wanted. So the results of this study were that the single leg was uh, 98 watts was the average uh, power for single leg VO2 max intervals. And for double leg, it was 344. So the single leg intervals were 58% of the double leg power. And um, that's lower than the 79%. Um, and that's likely actually due to the counterweight the counterweight prevented the hip flexors and the posterior chain from being utilized as much. So you actually weren't able to produce as much power, even though it simulated the double leg better. And uh, the big takeaway in terms of improvements is that there were increases in some protein concentrations associated with glucose utilization, and there were also increases in markers of the capacity to utilize oxygen for energy. So of the riders who used, who did single leg training, they were better able to utilize glucose and they had a better utilization of oxygen, according to blood markers within the muscles. Okay, so that, that sounds beneficial. And I think the, the big thing for me there is that they, even though their experimental design was different and their setup was a little bit different using that counterweight, they, in a sense, replicated the result from the first study, showing that your legs aren't 50-50 contribution, right? It's actually more than 50% contribution. Um, so I think that's that's a good thing. But that's certainly interesting. That there's some some unique training effect that's occurring there with yeah, the so leg training. It's good that this study noticed uh, the particular effects on the muscles themselves. Um, but the big kicker here is there was no increase in maximal oxygen consumption for the rider when doing a two-legged VO2 max test after the study and time trial performance was not difference. There was no difference in time trial performance between the two groups. So, so, and again, I think that replicates or confirms the conclusion the other study made that the limiter is not necessarily the leg, right? That there's something else and, causing and the restriction. The other thing that's interesting here is they did both a VO2 max test and found no difference, but also that they did a time trial. So in the last study, they said, we, we said, ah, well, it's a VO2 max test. Nobody wins a bike race with a VO2 max test. Well, they did a time trial. People win time trials. And to think that you can do a three-week protocol for single leg training, you can sh- have increased markers of, of glucose utilization, oxygen utilization, but has no effect on your time trial. 
Well, so then I guess the maybe the counter is what if what if the effect is at a lower value, right? What if the effect is at a tempo, some, somewhere you're more efficient in a tempo ride, and that then manifests itself in a you know four hour race? Yeah. So um, we don't know. This this paper does not help us in that particular way. And um, actually, I have a few different theories or ideas in where uh, one legged training could be useful, but um, we have two more studies to go over before we start to speculate because um, the opinions that I hold that there are no studies these are um, four of you know there, there aren't very many studies on this topic and I found as many as I could but I only found four and um, none of them are are at tempo so um, all the best we can do is um, speculate but the next study um, one-legged endurance training leg blood flow and oxygen extraction during cycling exercise. So this one's interesting and, and in my opinion, a bit silly. They took 12 riders and they only let them train one of their two legs. Okay. And they did that for seven weeks. They said, you can do intervals on your right leg, not on your left. Um, and I actually don't know the exact protocol. They may have been allowed to choose which leg they wanted to train. But what they did was they measured the volume of oxygen that was used at the lungs and then also at each leg individually. Mm-hmm. And the um, the trained leg showed an increase in VO2 max of 6%, 6.7% after seven weeks of training, but there was no change in total VO2 max. So more of the same, more validation that were centrally limited, central circulus- circulation is the limitation in our ability to use uh, oxygen to produce power as opposed to at the muscular level. And um, that was uh, that study is pretty basic, but um, just more confirmation of uh, the fact that single leg training, even though you you improved one of the, the two muscle groups, one of your two legs, you didn't see any difference. Um, despite that, that leg contributing more to your power, so they saw a difference in uh, power leg to leg. So it was, you know, say 55%, 45% with the trained leg in terms of the power contribution, but the total number, the total power was no different. Okay. I mean, I guess there's, you know, one spin on that is sure your, your power maybe changed, but if you didn't train your other leg for seven weeks, did that leg lose, you know, lose some capacity? you know, lose some ability to produce force. Certainly the central um, central fatigue hypothesis fits in. But yeah. there's also an alternative, which is, well, you know, yes, whatever you gain by training one leg for seven weeks, you lost by not training the other leg for seven weeks. And again, this depends on the specifics of the protocol. Uh, but that's a, you know, right, that's a possibility. That- yeah, so that's interesting. And, and maybe that's what I was getting at when I was saying that the study's a bit silly. Um, because we're we're kind of adiposing one leg and we're hyper training the other leg, and then you know there's too many factors here to really make a make a conclusion about what's actually happening with the single leg training. Yeah, you'd have to do some some other control, right, to take take that into account. Yep. And um, the last paper we have is central and regional circulatory adaptations to one leg training. So they took six young male riders. Unfortunately, only six. It's not uh, the largest group. And I mean, we've talked about this before with white papers. We're happy with 12, I think, in uh, 
in the sports science yeah Yeah. especially especially when you get into the elite right like it's one thing when you have the uh college student that you're paying 50 bucks to to do the study and you can recruit them all or you tell them you know being part of a study is part of getting credit for the quarter i don't know if you had that in school i definitely had that in psychology classes like oh yep you part part of this is you have to do six experiments yeah we had that for for psych 101 yep it's pretty common thing so, you know, those, okay, well, whatever, you may get a few more, but for the elite studies, yeah, those are, those are hard to come by. So if you do get 10 or 12, solid study, right? Yeah. So this is an interesting paper because they did eight weeks of one leg training for both legs. So we don't have this uh, adipose leg, trained leg effect, um, but there was no control group. So that's uh, unfortunate, but- Ooh, and, o- and only six. Yeah, well, that's why they didn't have a control group. We're gonna have <laughs> three, three uh, trained riders and three control. So, um, VO two max for single leg exercises increased by nineteen percent throughout the eight weeks. So they did a single leg VO two max effort on each leg independently. I believe on different days, and then on another different day, they did two legged VO two max, and then they did eight weeks of single leg training. And single leg exercise VO2 max increased by 19%, but double leg VO2 max increased by only 11%. So um, one conclusion that you could make is that single leg exercises cause specific adaptations to single leg efforts. And Mm -hmm. there is uh, a training effect, but it our goal is to become a better two-legged cyclist and the effect of training single leg improves your single leg performance much more than it improves your double leg performance. I also think when you see a big jump like that, part of it is just being novice in that skill, right? Most of us don't ride around pedaling with just one leg. So if you introduce eight weeks of training and pedaling with just one leg, you're going to see a big gain because you haven't done it before, right? It's just like when you start cycling, if you just go ride your bike four or five days a week in two months, you're a lot stronger because it's, it's new to you. But then if you're, you know, been racing for 10 years and you go ride your bike for eight weeks, just to ride your bike, you're not going to be any stronger. You need to do specific training. So I think that just novice effect plays a role there. I believe the term is, um, competency bias. Sure. Uh, and so the the formal term is, you know, your competency improves because of your experiences throughout the study. And if someone goes in and does their first VO2 max effort as their first as the, you know, the baseline, you know that no matter what their their next VO2 max effort's going to be better because they they know what the mask is like, they they've been on the ergometer before and you know they're just more competent and they're more competent in the study. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and especially if you've never done a VO2 max test before. Yeah, you'll probably test better the second time, no matter what. So yeah, the big takeaway from the study is that there are region specific adaptations to single leg training. And there are single leg training specific adaptations to single leg training. Um, And it's also interesting, this author, instead of claiming that we have some sort of central limitation to our VO2 max for double leg efforts, they instead claimed that there was a vasoconstriction effect when two large muscle groups are both used. Interesting. So they're saying that we're relatively constricting our muscles at the point when we most need to have 
our or concerning our vessels when we mostly need to have them relaxed and open to allow blood flow to the muscles because we're using yeah. too many. So va- yeah, vasoconstriction is squeezing of the blood vessels, and this is common actually in your upper body, if I'm correct. Uh, during uh, during lower body efforts like cycling, you will get a lot of vasoconstriction in your upper body, and that pushes the blood down to where your body wants to use it. Although alternatively, if you vasodilate, which is the opposite, and it, like you'll do that when it's hot, when you're trying to lose heat for sweat, because the the downside of vasoconstriction is that it tends to keep the blood closer to the um, to the core, and then it's harder to lose heat. Where you really want vasodilation and the blood to be closer to periphery, so you can lose heat through sweat and um, just yeah, having the is that convective cooling losses and conductive. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the authors, you know, they claim that you get some vasoconstriction in both legs when you use both of them at the same time, as opposed to when you use one leg at a time, you get, you know, more vasodilation in the, in the working muscle. Interesting. So then I guess we'd have to prove that this was true in like running and rowing and whatever other, you know, bilateral endurance events we do, right? Yeah. So um, it's interesting that they're the only people who uh, mention vasoconstriction as a possible effect uh, within this, where as other people uh, basically just said, well, you know, we're, we're limited further up the chain um, for this. So um, those, those are the four studies we have. And um, all other studies on single leg cycling, they showed good results but they were largely on patients with COPD or diabetes who were sedentary and they were trying to get them to just start um, doing exercise. And so they would do single leg efforts and it was shown to be better. And it's ambiguous. It, it improves blood flow. It you know, has a lot of advantages for these people, but it's hard to know if uh, it's because the total workload is higher because if you do two separate sets of individual leg efforts, the total workload's going to increase. They couldn't tell if um, just exercising was beneficial. Um, so it's ambiguous. And at the end of the day, it's not so useful for a performance cycling uh, you know, podcast. Uh, so we didn't really talk about those. But um, the other thing that's interesting is that one of these studies, and I'm sorry that I don't have the particular one, they... Uh, mentioned the FTP of their athletes, and I believe the FTP was about 240 watts. And um, you know what? That's like a Cat 5, Cat 4 level. And um, none of them said, you know, average wattage 340 for FTP. Um, and the one paper did have the um, VO2 max intervals were at 344 watts, which is respectable. That's, mm-hmm. I'd say, Cat 3 level. Um, it and depends, depends on how oh, yeah, big their riders on, are, right? Then the, the body mass, which I'm sure is in there. Yeah. So uh, we could do the hard math on it, but you know, there aren't any, we took five world-class cyclists and, you know, ran them through this protocol. So we don't know how high-performing cyclists respond to this. And, um, like I said before, all we can really do is speculate based on the information we have until we get the funding. Todd and I were going for the grant to get the funding to do some more single leg training. Single leg cycling training research study. Yeah. So yeah, only elite on, cyclists. Yep, elite cyclists. 
So let me just share some of my notes that I have on um, what I learned through this, and um, that'll start our discussion on um, what we can take away. So my the biggest conclusion that I have, and this is from the study where they showed increased utilization of oxygen and increased utilization of glucose in the single leg muscle when you did a single leg protocol, the three-week protocol. It's my understanding that single leg training allows you to maximally tax the muscle. So because when we do double leg work, especially at VO2 max, we are limited by our oxygen carrying capacity to the muscles. When we do single leg efforts, our total wattage is 200 watts to 20 watts. And what that allows us to do is actually use the muscles, you know, for five minutes as hard as the muscles can go. And this is a great way to train the muscle, to really give the muscle a long-term hard effort. And that seems like an advantage. It seems like a positive to be able to, you know, just do five minutes straight of, um, you know, a hard effort and not be limited by something other than the strength or the fatigue limitations of the muscle. That's a, that's a fair that's a fair point. All right. So you're, what you're saying as well. You know, even though I may not get the benefit, or at least we haven't proven that there's a benefit that carries over in a significant way in terms of VO2 max or power output in your double leg cycling, here's this opportunity to push your muscles harder than you would have in your normal training because you're not now limited by oxygen uptake, perhaps. I like that. I And, you know, I, I think there's some follow-up research to be done there because Maybe there is some benefit that we just can't we just can't see. We just haven't measured it yet. Yeah, and um, I sort of equate this to weightlifting. Like I think you and I both are proponents of cyclist strength training, and we've found studies that it improves endurance performance, it improves uh, mitochondrial density, like lots of good Im- improvements for cyclists if they weightlift. And how is single leg training different than weightlifting in terms of just maximally fatiguing the muscle? And generating a response caused by that. The big difference I see is that the efforts are a bit longer. For example, if you're squatting, even if you're doing 12 reps, it's a minute effort at the most. Whereas uh, these single leg efforts are four minutes, three minutes at a time. So the effort is a bit longer, but it's similar in that you're taking the aerobic component out and you're just making that muscle as strong as it can be. Yeah, and it's from different angles, right? When you talk about weightlifting, it's a force production. Uh, There's just different capacity where I think what you're talking about now with these single leg drills or single leg intervals is really straining the the muscle's aerobic capacity, right? Because it is longer than weightlifting, right? Weightlifting trains you a little bit differently, um, whereas this is maybe even more specific to cycling um, in the sense of it's kind of endurance space. It's these longer durations. Obviously it's position specific to what we're doing on the bike. And maybe there is some, some value. I, so I think, you know, this seems to be an open question more than anything else, whether it just isn't a ton of research and maybe the, the research hasn't tackled the right questions. Yeah. So I, I think it's interesting that one, one effort that's really common for training is uh, three by eight minutes at 60 or 50 cadence. Um, and you do it at about sweet spot. And the point of this is the force production on the muscles. If you were to multiply it to a regular cadence of 90 or 100, 
is about the same as VO2 max. So say you have a threshold of 300, uh, you do 270 watts, that's your sweet spot, you do that for eight minutes at a time, and you do that at a low cadence, the force production that you have would be you know, a third higher. You do the math out, and basically you're doing for the muscles a VO2 max effort, but for your aerobic system only a sweet spot effort. And that's another trick they use to try and fatigue the muscles in this maximal way to to take away the aerobic component and improve the capacity of the muscles. This is a really common preseason workout. And it's almost like single leg training could be an even better version of this. And a lot of the papers used a fairly low cadence of 50 or 60. So maybe single leg training is just the more advanced version of these low cadence eight minute efforts. Yeah, I argue with that. Again, I think it's fair. I think fair point. Um, I just, I, I think there's something attractive about this idea of fatiguing the muscle in an endurance based fashion beyond what we can normally do in our intervals. And there's something very attractive here. I just can't wrap my head around where, what we would measure at the end of the day to see the benefits. I think what the research is telling us right now is it's not a time trial and it's not a VO2 max effort. So what is like, what is the thing in cycling? And for, you know, specifically, I think as we're concerned about it, the thing in a race that we'd have to measure to be able to see where this uh, single leg training sort of would give us a benefit random thought here though on my end is i feel like there's probably some benefit to core strength as well by trying to do the single leg training because you even if you put your your off leg on something really stable you still have to do some some coordination of some of the smaller muscles of the core and everything to keep you going around that circle with your one only one leg going because i think some of cycling naturally is you just get the balance of the two legs going in opposition Whereas now you only have the one leg going, one stationary. So there's probably some benefit to core stability that comes from that. Yeah, and I definitely notice myself if I really focus on the cadence and even just um, form single leg drills, not for power, but just for following through the motions, you you do definitely get more core engagement. So uh, that is a very possible, although, yeah, we'll see about the total load though. Um, the, the one study did three weeks of two times per week, four minutes per leg. How much total time under load is that? And is that really going to cause a stimulus to the core to improve power? Or, you know, you might not even need a stronger core. It could just be you have the, the neural connections and the, the motor patterns to actually engage the core when you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm willing to believe there is a core component or a core improvement is part of uh, the reason why you could see an improvement. I had another uh, list of potential um, potential people who could benefit from single leg work. So the big takeaway here is that um, single leg work isn't useful if your circulatory system is the limiter. So are there riders that are muscularly limited who aren't central circulation limited and i you know who is this so i was thinking climbers climbers generally have very low muscle mass because they have low total body weight so they are more likely to more closely approach their maximum um, muscle capacity 
relative to their aerobic capacity. So they could benefit from improving their muscle capacity and you can do more work than with less muscle mass, which mm -hmm. could then allow you to lose more weight. And that's why you see some riders who are like, they have no muscle mass and their threshold is still, you know, 20% higher high. than ours. Yeah. So those people could benefit from single leg work potentially. Um, also new riders who don't have the muscle coordination to, um, who don't have the muscle coordination and also don't have the aerobic capacity to maximally tax their muscles. They could benefit from single leg work. So it could be beneficial for someone who is brand new. Um, the other, other groups, it could be good for someone who has a large engine. So mm -hmm. someone who they don't have aerobic capacity issues, but their muscles fatigue. And there are people who are muscle limited and, uh, training their muscles, doing single leg training work could be a benefit. I'm thinking about the person who's athletic, but new to cycling. And that when you say that, I'm thinking about somebody who maybe was a runner and picked up cycling. They don't, they, you know, they have plenty of aerobic capacity and legs are maybe pretty strong too, but they may not have the pattern, the coordination down yet. And right. I can see where they would benefit from that. Yeah, it seems like it would be intuitive for um, either a new rider or, yeah, especially now that we talk about riders with high aerobic capacity, a new rider with a high aerobic capacity, such as an endurance athlete who isn't cycling specific. I was also thinking like a crew or rowing uh -huh. yep. athlete would also be a good example. Um, these types of riders would probably also benefit from single leg training. And then the other two groups that I had were riders with very long efforts. So if you're doing a four-hour race, you need really good muscles because actually after four hours, one, your glycogen stores are a limiter, but two, your muscles are a limiter. Your muscles' ability to continue to fire maximally or close to maximally is a limiter after three and a half hours, four hours. So having really good muscles is going to be a benefit for a rider like that. Well, now the thing is doing these really long, right, gravel races that are twice as long as that, if you're lucky, sometimes, you know, even longer. Yeah. So if, if you have muscles that have good oxygen utilization, good uh, glucose utilization, hopefully they also have a higher resistance to fatigue. And so all of these benefits could uh, allow you to do these. And also gravel races, gravel roads are uh, a little less friendly than uh, you know, our local highway where it's a 5% grade for a mile is a piece of cake in these gravel roads. There's steep pitches, there's all kinds of crazy stuff. So you need to have that ability to produce the power and have really dynamic muscles that can withstand a lot of different loads. Yeah. It would be, it would be interesting to look at, you know, what happens if I give you a test that has very, you know, imagine, you know, time trial as well, set your pace. What if I gave you a a task that had a lot of variance, would that show a benefit to the single leg training? Yeah, that's an interesting point. And um, yeah, so time trial IF is about one. Same with a VO2 max test, your IF would be, you know, not one, but pretty low because it's a smooth gradient increase. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see how a mountain biker would respond. It's also hard to quantify. That's why they don't do those tests. Right. You're thinking like a variability index, right? Like looking at the normalized power relative to average power. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's exactly, that's a very hard, like you'd have to make a protocol. Yeah. Variability. But, sorry. Variability index, not intensity factor. Correct. Yeah. So but, yeah. Yeah. Va variability index is how, uh, how much difference there is in the power, um, over time.
So yeah, yeah a time so trial you... is one. And um, how do, yeah, you said you told me before mountain biking is like one point three or yeah, one point three to one point five depending on the race. Yeah, so super high variability in power and um, lots of sharp spikes. And how does uh, uh, muscle with better you know fatigue resistance? Um, you know how how does it fare in in a mountain bike race? So the last group that I had was um, riders who, once again, were not central circulation limited, and that could potentially be um, sprinters, like one kilometer riders on the track. You're when you're doing an anaerobic effort under say ninety seconds, you're not really oxygen limited a lot of the time. And someone like that could benefit from having really good, strong muscles, and they don't care as much about the, you know, the oxygen capacity, oxygen limitations. Yeah, no, that's, that's totally fair, right? And the shorter, the shorter your event is, the less oxygen matters. Yeah. So it's interesting that uh, potentially really short efforts could benefit from single leg training and potentially really long efforts could benefit from endurance training or from single leg training. And then meanwhile, your 20 minute time trial, no effect. So inverted, inverted U shape curve. Yeah. So, um, do you have more, uh, more speculation or, um, well, so, I mean, I think this, this might be a new, a new episode in and of itself, right? Which is if you look at strength training, I think the result is going to be different. I think you, I think you would see a different result from single leg versus double leg strength training than you would, um, single leg versus double leg endurance training. And maybe part of that is right. Oxygen's not the limiting factor anymore. Um, and you're looking at a different, a different central limiter. Right, as opposed to lungs and blood circulation for those, you know, super short efforts, you're looking at uh, neural limitation and how that how that plays a role. Um, but I don't think that plays as much of a role. I don't think neural fatigue is the limiting factor here. Right, if you're used to pedaling for three hours, pedaling for five minutes with one leg is not tapping your you know your neural system is not tapping out at that point. Yeah, so um, the I guess the big difference between weight training and single leg bike training is the fact that the single leg bike training is going to train the aerobic system of the muscles, mm-hmm. even at the VO2 max level. And the point is we are depriving the muscles of oxygen, and then they improve their ability to use oxygen as a result because, oh crap, we need more capacity right. to use oxygen. And... Um, we it's it's just fascinating because can we think of a scenario where this would be beneficial um i'm personally willing to believe that if i start doing one-legged exercises one-legged vo2 max exercises i i think i will see an improvement okay well here's here's one what about altitude where using oxygen matters, matters yeah. more. Could, could, that, could that make you more efficient in how you're processing it perhaps Hmm. But you'd have to think about where the limitation is at altitude along the pipeline. So what's fascinating about what makes a professional cyclist very fast is they've optimized the entire pipeline of using oxygen. All, all the pathway, yeah. So their ability to breathe, to get the oxygen into the lungs, the ability to transfer the oxygen out of the lungs into their blood, the ability to move the blood to the muscles 
ability to take it out, all of these steps are all optimized. And if one of them is slow, the whole process is slow. So at what point does the altitude, you know, which of these steps is limited by the altitude? So is it far enough down the list that it's at the muscle or is it at the lung level or is it at the blood level? I think it depends on the rider and the altitude. Yeah. Right? If, I mean, you know, for the purpose of road cycling, what the highest paved roads in the world are 14,000 ish feet. Um, you know, so I think that's a different, that's a different limitation than when you talk about Alpine climbers and you talk about Mount Everest type, uh, elevation where, there, you know, you just can't get enough oxygen, right? Or very, very few people are getting enough oxygen uh, to yeah. be able to function. So, you know, and if you come down to more pedestrian altitudes, you know, if you talk about the 6,000, 7,000 feet, then I think it's even right, a different conversation. Six, 7,000 feet, if you look at um, SPO2, so your oxygen saturation at the in the capillaries and the blood. So typically people at sea level are going to be you know 100 full, fully saturated you know maybe 98 is going to be a typical number you're going to see uh, you start to get up into the 7,000 foot range maybe that drops down to 95 ish and then i want to say in the 10,000 foot range it's not uncommon to see like a, a 92 93 type of a level right and then if you you know so if you go on the flip side if somebody is sick, say has COPD, then they might be at sea level at a like 90, you know, mm -hmm. right? so they're, and they're having a hard time. So like if you start to get into those low, you know, low nineties into the eighties, you can function, but you're, you're having a tough time. Um, so like then, then I would say like, well, it's probably more oxygen limited. You're, there's just not enough oxygen atmosphere coming in for you to be able to breathe it in and then um, get it onto the red, red blood cells and, distribute it into the muscle but below that then you should you know it's not necessarily the oxygen coming in that's going to be the limiter yeah so it's interesting and um yeah i just wonder if is there a certain effort that benefits from this um, there's just so many different efforts and there's three different energy systems and uh, we've shown a way to increase the aerobic capacity of particular muscles even if you're full body aerobic capacity can't handle it uh is this a benefit to one of these efforts you know it's, as as with all good research the resulting answer is but we're not sure we need to do more research right yeah we need more funding so please sign our next grant right but also such as science right like it, it the process never stops just because you got a result you need to go back and validate that result yeah, and then always your results just ask more questions as well. So, um, so yeah, that's what I have on single leg riding. Um, I think that the real question here is, are you limited by your aerobic system? Are you limited by your muscle's ability to use oxygen? Um, and if you are limited by your muscle's ability to use oxygen, potentially implement a single leg workout protocol. Um, and if not, then keep doing your, your regular exercises. So I wouldn't be surprised if more, uh, more studies come out on this topic because it does seem very fresh. Some of these are very recent, uh, white papers and the results so far are pretty inconclusive. So 
uh, we may be hearing about this a lot more in the future. So I'm, I'm going to pose a practical question to you here, which is, all right, so let's say I don't know any, I don't know the answer to the questions you just posed about what my limiting factors are. I, do, I can just tell you my FTP and I can maybe tell you, you know, what types of races I do well in. And you say, okay, well, let's just say you think I should do single leg training. You have a hypothesis. Like, you know what? I think single leg training might help you. If you're me or the listener, when would you implement single leg training? Do you think, oh, this is an off season sort of thing? No, oh, this is a base training sort of thing. Like what's your, kind of what's your mindset on like, well, when, when do you think this would be most beneficial? And there may not be one right answer here. So I think that when I spoke about this method may be a more advanced version of muscle endurance work. I think that this should be used at the same time as muscle endurance work. So that would typically be towards the end of your base period, uh, just a little bit before, maybe a month before you start racing. You would have a block of four to six weeks of uh, low cadence, uh, moderate power intervals with the intention of really trying to fatigue the muscles and give them some fatigue resistance. Um, so I would say towards the end of the base period is uh, probably the best time to implement this. And it's interesting because um, we are able to get away from the aerobic system and tax the individual muscles. What's interesting is a the reason a lot of professional cyclists do so many endurance miles is because they don't want to induce too much muscular fatigue. And the issue with a lot of riders, the reason they can't do 30 hours a week is because their muscles are too tired, not because their aerobic system can't handle it, not because they can't eat enough, but because my muscles, like my legs are dead. So they do low intensities to mitigate that muscular fatigue. So if you start to implement single leg workouts, this is a very muscular fatiguing effort. You, you don't want that you know, during the race season, you don't want that in times when you need your legs to perform. And that could be a limiter for elite athletes to use this method. They're just not interested in this method because it, it gives them dead legs and they can't do their base miles the next day. So uh, finding the right balance with these things, but towards the end of the base period is normally the time when you would improve the quality of your muscles a month or two before you start racing. And um, like this uh, one study said, they'd only did three weeks of it and they showed significant increases in the capacity of the muscle. So I would say three to six weeks is probably a good bet for how long you want to do this. All right. Very good. Anything else? Um, no, I think that's it. I think this is, I think this is fascinating a bit. Um, maybe I just want it to be valuable. Um but it's at the same time, uh, I don't know, it's a bit silly, like thinking about I'm going to rest my one leg on my top tube and um, sweat it out with the other leg um, is uh, I think some riders would sort of scratch their heads and go, what am I doing again? Although if there is ever a time, the time is now that we're all stuck indoors or you know limited and have maybe more opportunity for indoor training and no definite time for when we get to race next. Yeah. I think people who, for example, uh, I raced on the East coast for collegiate Northeast and there were riders who couldn't get outside for four or five months at a time. This would be a great effort for you guys because 
you could just have great muscles and this is all trainer workouts. It'd just be a great way to continue to improve as a cyclist. So, um, yeah, fascinating. Hopefully, uh, somebody takes up the mantle and, uh, studies this stuff more and gives us some answers, but, um, or, or this is just your advertisement for funding for your future PhD. Yeah. So, uh, if you are listening to this and you get a PhD in this topic, uh, mention our episode. We'd like to get a few references. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Todd, um, I don't have anything else. All right. Well, as, as always, if you, if you like this, you enjoy listening, please share, share with your friends or your competitors. If you're that type of a person or, you know, give us a, a shout out on social media and, you know, we do appreciate your reviews. So if you have feedback for us, please do share uh, wherever you listen to your, to our episodes. And until next time, as I always say, keep the rubber side down. <laughs>